Lit Service is brought to you by Writer's Clearinghouse. Writer's Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. Now here's the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and if I could change any book ending, it would be Where the Red Fern Grows. I'm Cameron, and Kristen, sorry, not sorry, but if I could change any ending, it would be that of The Last Jedi. I'm Caitlin, and if I could change any ending, it would definitely be Interstellar, and I would make it into a good movie. An hour shorter. And an hour shorter. (laughs) I'm Kristen, and I would change... The ending of Animorphs. <laughs> Is there an end to Animorphs? Yes, and it's heartbreaking. And I just think that some of the core group should, they deserve to get past their post-traumatic stress disorder and live healthy lives. Well, I didn't realize Animorphs was so heavy. Are you kidding me? It's, a, it's a little heavy. Oh my word. Okay, sum up. Group of six people. Only one of them is confirmed living at the end. One of them is definitely dead, killing her cousin. One of them is a horrible leader who has become ruthless. The other is a tactician who's the worst. And then one becomes a hawk forever and can't ever find his happiness. spoilers. Oh, come on. That happens in book one. (laughs) Yeah, it's really, it's it's a bummer. Aren't those chapter books? They're like junior junior fiction. (laughs) Yes, and they explain everything about my taste in literature. Wow. (laughs) You know, that does. That does. That does. All right. Well, today we have a really exciting topic, and it's kind of an important one. We've had a lot of guests on recently who have said this is actually what they look for in first chapters when deciding if they want to take the book farther. So what we wanted to talk about today is how to pace your backstory. Real quickly, what do we mean by pacing our backstory? So pacing backstory means how quickly you dispense information about both the character, what they want, what their stakes are, what the world looks like, like if there's a magic system or if you're in a historical situation, the political situation. You have to balance your character with your backstory I mean with your with your setting and with your genre you have to be able to see really clearly what the genre is going to be in the first chapter or early on we're just trying to avoid dumping every piece of relevant information onto the first page like six of crows which of course we have to bring up the first time we see Kaz we don't know about his weird backstory with his brother or why he hates Pika Rollins so much. Like, we know that there are some things that he's hiding from the very beginning, which is really important, but the rest of it, it can wait. Mm -hmm. I just read The Poet X, which the first, it's in verse, so the first chapter is not very long, and all we get from it pretty much is that she is not super interested in religion, and her mother is very interested Mm -hmm. in religion, and that's about it. That's all they give us pretty much. But it sets up one of the core tensions of the novel, Mm -hmm. which I think... Which made me really, cry. Really well. Like literally in my room alone, tears oh, coming yeah, down no, my face. <laughs> <laughs> so it really doesn't it really doesn't have to be much info that we get in that first chapter. But because we as the authors, we have so much info on these characters already, with all the pre-writing we've done, how do we decide what is the most important thing to get out as soon as possible? What else can wait, but what needs to be out there? I feel like the most immediately relevant information, especially when you're talking about your POV's backstory, is you wanna know what they want. And then kind of like the driving details that make what they want relevant to what is immediately going on. 
And I think anything not directly related to understanding that driving desire for the scene, pretty much it's like like fluff. Like you really don't need it in the beginning. Well, I think it depends because I feel like you do need grounding details to allow your reader to have context for that want for Mm -hmm. your... um... Well, it's like you definitely have to create a place. I'm not saying you don't create a sense of place in the scene. Well, not even sense of place, but like world too. Yeah. Well, right, but so, but like you keep it as close and immediately relevant to what they want as mm-hmm. to what's going on. I feel like that's the reason the Poet X can use so little information because lots of people can relate, if not specifically to my mother's super religious and I'm not interested, but they can relate to my parents want something that I don't and they're in charge of me. Yeah. And even if you don't know your character's chief motivation on the first page, I think as long as you explore just some little promises of what the actual conflict of the book is going to be is going to be really helpful, especially in establishing genre or level of consequences. Like the Poetex, Siamara is facing very different problems than Katniss, who's about to be reaped for the Hunger Games. And you know that right from the beginning, that they're just a different type of conflict. And I think that's something that's really essential to establish quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, and so would you say that even if, like you said, even if you don't know or not going to get on the page what your character's driving conflict for the entire story is, at the very least, the con- the driving conflict and what they want that's causing that conflict for that scene at least needs to be on the first page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say the first couple paragraphs. Yeah, I agree. So what sorts of things then can wait? So many things. <laughs> I think I'm reading a bunch of first chapters right now, and one of the the problems that I see in like, I think 99% of them is I don't know the first, I don't know the main character's name. Like they don't put it in at all or it doesn't get to like the very end of the chapter. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a really simple thing, but the name needs to be there relatively quickly. And um, some things that don't need to happen immediately, like I don't need to know what your character looks like necessarily. Mm-hmm. I don't need to know their entire backstory. I don't need to know like Six of Crows, which... Mm-hmm. It has an interesting model that it's using because there are flashbacks throughout it. Yes. So the whole point is it's using flashbacks as a way to to make tension rise because yeah. we want to know these characters are in a tense situation. We want to know how they got there. Yeah. Like Nina and Matthias, why do they hate each other? We don't know. <laughs> oh, do they hate each they other? They don't. I mean, they do, but they don't. There's lots of fun tension there. I think it's both. I think the answer to that is, is both. Of course yeah. it is. <laughs> yes. And finding out and seeing how deep it runs and why is why that story is interesting. Reactions on the page between the two of them was enough to know what their situation was. We didn't need to know the whole backstory, like you already said. So. And as readers, we're conditioned not to look for everything about a character all at once. Even when I think of my own writing, I have an idea for a character and I may not know their family situation. I may not know where they're headed in life. But I kind of discover those things as I'm writing and readers kind of expect the same thing to happen more or less. Well, and that's how we interact with the real world. Like actual people that we meet, that no one walks up to you and says, hi, my name is so-and-so and and my father got slaughtered by some raiders. (laughs) Nobody does that. So it's kind of weird when your protagonist does the same thing, unless there's a very good reason that they feel the need to relate all of that at once. I was going to say, kind of go back to the Six of Crows example, especially with Matthias and, oh geez. Nina. Nina, there we go. That situation, if we just wrote a paragraph that details their past interactions, I think it would be pretty much impossible to convey the emotional weight that you get with the extended flashbacks later on. Yeah. So like you're, in a lot of ways, if you have, especially when you're dealing with like deep emotional trauma, if you try to summarize it, in the opening chapter, you're just going to cheapen it. Right. And it's much better to, to get along until you can actually deliver 
the scene, if that makes sense. Yeah. And well, another book or another series that does that, this doesn't mean you should use this model specifically, but another one that utilizes flashbacks in that same way is um, the Way of King series by mm -hmm. Brandon Sanderson, where each book delves into each character's backstory. And I think that you have readers in that genre that are willing to wait for it a little bit more. So you have to pay attention to your genre. And if you're writing middle grade, you probably aren't going to have a big twisty backstory that reveals itself using an entire book because middle grade readers don't have that attention span. But depending on who you're writing for, you can take your time because people will get the hints, like your Raiders example, where your character says, my father was murdered by Raiders. If you have your main character react to something that shows that there's backstory, I mean, readers are interested in finding out what it is. And it creates tension rather than cheapening it, like Cameron was talking about. Yeah, it makes me think of The Knife of Never Letting Go by Patrick Ness. Mm -hmm. It's a really complicated plot, and if I try and explain it in one sentence, it's going to sound stupid because it's my best attempt is that there's a planet of settlers where every man's thought is broadcast to the world. All the women died of a disease. Todd is becoming a man. Something weird is happening. He doesn't know what's going on. But You're really good at elevator pitches. Thank can you. I just say that? <laughs> thank you. Thank you. The thing is, is that on the first page, in the first chapter, we don't know anything. All we know is that Todd has a dog who can talk and that he's going to pick apples in the swamp. And that's all we get. And, and that he's annoyed about And that he's stuff. really annoyed about stuff. So yeah. we get the wants. We do. We get, we get the, I want out of here, and I want to stop having to do little boy chores, which barely touches on what the book is actually going to be about. And we never get the flashback stuff there. It's, it's all discover as you go. And the thing is, is that as a reader, if you do it right anyway, you're willing to hold on to it and pay attention even if you don't understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember reading the book for the first time and being like, a hole in the noise? What? What is happening? And having that be a reason to keep turning pages rather than a thing that made me stop. Yeah. And I think the key to that, like to having it be a tension increaser rather than something that makes you want to throw the book across the room is being able to put details in context yeah. that your reader can understand. Like with Todd, we have this kid who's angsty about all the stuff he's being asked to do, who's annoyed at his dog. And that's our introduction to I can hear other men's mm -hmm. thoughts because... He can hear the dog's thoughts. And then we're introduced to other people. And it's he very walks through slowly. The town. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very, very slowly brought to our attention that, no, he can hear everyone's thoughts. And everyone's thoughts are creepy. Yeah. Well, they would be, don't you think? Anyone's thoughts. Well, if you can hear everybody's thoughts, it Yeah, would be but especially in the town, it, there's a reason that they're creepy. Mm -hmm. So it's just like revealing details at a nice pace rather than all at once or not at all. Mm -hmm. So it seems like a good rule then to judge if a detail is worthy of being part of the backstory in that moment is if you can pull it out of narration and work it into the scene. So it's more, mm -hmm. we're getting it more in real time. And then you can really tell if the detail is pertinent to the action going on, or if it's just something that has helped you as a writer kind of shape your character's voice. A really good rule to ask yourself is, what happens in this chapter, and what do my readers need to know specifically in order to put it in context? And if they don't need to know where the crops come from, or why they built a sidewalk on the side of the road, or <laughs> what kind of plants are there, like you don't, have to put that in unless it's immediately relevant. And you know, sometimes those details may, like Caitlin was saying, never come into the book. There are pages and pages of backstory that every author has that will never see the light of day, and thank goodness. But the things, <laughs> <laughs> the things that do need to make it into a book eventually, I would say, are, I like to think of the personality islands in Inside Out, the things that make the main character who she is. And as readers, we're okay waiting for those, but by the end of the book, we should be able to have a pretty good grasp of what makes this person who they are. Mm -hmm. And I think 
I think the seeds of that need to be in the beginning. I'm going back to Animorphs as an example because I think this is something that they do so well, but at the end, obviously there's a big war, so all the characters end up different, but the seeds of what they become are, if you go back and read the first book, they're there. Like Rachel is always getting into arguments and Marco is really good at tactics and the games that he's doing and Jake is the one they all crowd around. So you, you need to have a promise, I think, of what the character is going to become at the beginning. Just for continuity's sake, I just think that works really, really well in books when it happens. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about your favorite books, you probably have those seeds being planted right at the mm -hmm. very beginning. Like if you think of Cinder by Marissa Meyer, yeah. at the very beginning, she's a mechanic mm -hmm. and she's unhappy because her foot doesn't fit, which is a fun Cinderella thing but it's also her problem with her family. And, and then also you immediately get the plague. And you get a sense, of, it's been a while since I read the beginning, but I feel like you also get a sense of like her leadership capacity and her empathy. And so at the end when what happens happens, you're like, oh, this makes sense and it fits. Well, I mean, that first chapter, let me think. We have Cinder mm -hmm. trying to fix her foot. The prince arrives and says, uh -huh. fix my thing. And so we have the prince added in. And Io's not in it yet. Okay. And then the kid across the street gets the disease that mm -hmm. everybody's worried about, and then they burn everything down, and she has to escape. Oh, my word. And so we have, like, the main plot point. But it's not like, and the plague is this thing. Like, mm -hmm. we don't even know what the plague looks like. We just know that she's afraid of plague. Yeah. Which immediately contextualizes in the next few chapters that when her sister gets the plague, that, like, all is lost. But there's a problem. Yeah. It's a big, big, big problem. A really big problem, because there's no cure. This analysis is actually a perfect example, because honestly, getting the rhythm right of a backstory is it's really tricky. Um, and the only solution that I found is just practice, practice. Mm -hmm. But especially reading your favorite books like that and analyzing what these authors have done, where the details come in, and how those same details are important later. Mm -hmm. And maybe things you find out later in the series that you didn't know then, and you didn't need to know then. Mm-hmm. Another thing to think about is a lot of times your first chapter, we say this all the time, the first chapter that you write is probably also going to be the last chapter that you write. Mm -hmm. Your first chapter of your book, you're probably going to go back and refine after you've already put your book together. Because no matter how good of a planner you are, things are going to change. Your characters are going to take control of things. I hate it when people talk about that, actually. I hate it when people talk about their characters like as if. Yeah, them. I'm like, no. <laughs> they're My, fiction, guys. They are, they're not real. <laughs> they're but from the your same, brain. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, like, as you're writing, you realize, based on what you have come up with, that your characters, they wouldn't act the way that you had planned for them necessarily. Or, like, there's a better way or an even cooler thing that could happen. And so you end up having to go back and then figure out how to, like, find those threads and put them into your first couple of chapters. It doesn't have to be the very first chapter. I was just reading The Sweetness at the Bottom of the Pie, where, have you guys read that one? No, but oh, it's a great title. so good. Um, it's adult fiction, but it's from the perspective of, like, a 10-year-old girl Aww. who is, like, a chemist poisoner person who, like... Oh. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's not... <laughs> I was imagining, like, a sweet tale of baking. Oh, no, it's not that. She's, um, like, obsessed with death and poison. Her mother died when she was young. Oh, and so, of course. Um, and then someone dies in her front yard, pretty much. But, like, the first chapter is pretty much her escaping from a closet because her sisters gagged her into tied her up and locked her in there. But you don't know that that's what's happening because she's like, I've been locked in the closet and everything's the color of blood and my captors are stupid because they let me like cut my fingers out so I could so I could undo it. So you know that she's really, really smart. Then she gets out and she like swings her pigtails, goes down and talks to her dad and her dad's like, where are your sisters? And she's like, I haven't seen them, at least not since they tied me up. So like we have a really mm. good sense of this character that she's really smart, that she's interested in things that most 10 year olds are not interested in. And that is enough to get us moving forward in this story. 
And we didn't need to know that her, I think it mentions that her mother dies. But aside from that, we don't need to know more about her, like that she has this potions kit pretty much that she creates poison in until later. That's another excellent example. (laughs) We're about out of time for this section of the podcast. Any final thoughts before we move on to the critique? I think we're good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, a quick reminder, we try to keep this non-prescriptive. If you'd like to check out the text of this submission and see all of our notes, check on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So a quick summary. A young teenager's family fled the city after losing their mother to the plague. They finally return only to find that she might still be alive. Well, dun, dun, or dun. at least walking or floating around. We don't get a whole lot of detail. Yeah, we don't know if it's a ghost <laughs> or a real person. So what are some things we liked about the submission? There was some really lovely language. Um, one phrase in particular that I really liked was the one that talks about spires of churches are lifted up against the sky like hands pointed in prayer. I thought that was beautiful. Mm-hmm. There was some really nice characterization details too. I loved Helen as the sister, and there's a really nice detail about Helen and calluses that I loved. I also liked where she's not willing to get her hands dirty, so she hands off her chores. Mm-hmm. We all have a sister like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another characterizing detail was when she hushes the main character so they don't upset the youngest sister. So we know a whole lot about both her, that she's taking care of her younger sister, and that her younger sister is excitable, I guess. I also feel like we got a lot of good, like, concrete sensory details. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just it's not just a pastry. It's like a golden warm pastry we get a lot of there's a lot of smell there's a lot of touch we don't just get like geographic positions of things i also really like that by the end we realize that the main character blames herself a little or she doesn't blame herself there's a plague going through the city and that's what killed her mother she's like if we had just left a few hours earlier then mom would still be alive which is right before we find out that mom might really be alive i really like the sense of just how empty the city is coming back to it. Because I feel like oftentimes in history, we talk about the horrors of the plague and what it would be like to be there during the plague, but then we don't usually view it from the perspective of the people who had to come back to those empty homes and just Mm -hmm. the emptiness. And a a line I thought epitomized that really well was where it says the plague had carved our city to its core. I thought that was a lovely line. But also the contrast with kind of like life goes on. So it's like their house was empty, but there's still now that it's months later, the city is, if not as full as it was, bustling again. And so just kind of like the weird dichotomy of my life should be over, but it's still going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was getting like Shakespeare and love vibes a little bit from it, but also mixed with, did you ever read the girls from many lands books? Mm-mm. Okay. Well, there's one about this girl named Isabel who's in kind of a very similar situation right after a plague, but I was getting like mixtures of these two, like the whole time in terms of tone. And it was bringing me personally a lot of joy. So <laughs> I also, there's a really nice, kind of awkward kind of sweet moment between her Mm -hmm. and this boy she likes where she was supposed to beat him right before they left to get away from the plague and he said he would have kissed her before and she says it isn't too late Mm -hmm. steamy (laughs) actually as a person who genuinely enjoys historical romance there was some great stuff there but i do have to say that also as a ya reader my automatic assumption is that if the protagonist starts off in a happy healthy relationship there's a different boy for her. So. Yeah, it's true. That it's is, gotta go south quick. Yeah, that is the reader response. Either that or something will happen. Clearly, yeah, they're, they're going to be pushed away or she's going to find somebody else to push yeah. them away. So that's a good transition. What then are some things that might need a second look? Um, so the biggest thing that I sort of stumbled over was the dynamic between the main character and Will, the love interest guy who might not be a love interest, depending on what happens to separate them. So apparently they were really great friends, and then the day her mother got sick, they were supposed to meet up, like we said, and that there would be something more, like that was going to be the beginning of their relationship, but they didn't meet up 
And yet when she sees Will for the first time after coming back into the city after her mother has died and all of these awful things have happened, the first thing she does is run to him and give him a hug. And he like touches her face and kisses her. I don't remember if he kisses her on the cheek or something. And so I just feel like if I were a teenager in that situation where I was like, I'm supposed to go meet this boy that I'm super interested in and then I can't, the first thing I did when I got back would probably not... Like, it feels like the moment happened and then they missed each other and then they got back right to where they started rather than feeling awkward because they never actually stepped over that hurdle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and and even, like, if they had made plans, I am wondering why, like, Will wasn't hurt by it Mm -hmm. or, like, why it's okay just to pick up exactly where they left off. They seemed really confident about how the other person felt. Yeah. It sounds like they already had the conversation, but it's really clear in the text that they haven't had the conversation. Mm -hmm. Not nearly enough angst. (laughs) (laughs) At the beginning of the submission, uh, the main character is talking with her father, and she asks her father, must we return to the city so soon? But then a few lines later, they're in a wagon traveling or something, but a few lines later we realize that they've already returned to the city, so I got a little confused with the pacing and the timeline there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pacing is actually a really good thing to bring up, because I think that was a problem that this first chapter faced. I felt like we got a lot of backstory about Will and we got a lot of backstory about the plague and the family getting sick and leaving, but we didn't get a whole lot of the protagonist protagging, which is always kind of a rocky place to to introduce a person. Can it's, you describe real quick by what you mean by protagonist? Yes, okay. I, I guess I felt like the main character wasn't making a lot of active decisions that would have like an impact on other stuff. It was a lot of internalization and navel gazing. It almost seems like a walk through her life so she could exactly. tell us what had happened to her. Yeah, that can work, but I did wish that there was a little bit more, this is me as a person and here's what I'm choosing to do. And from my choices, this is how you know who I am. Yeah, I feel like that, like the walk through my life works as long as there's an end destination mm-hmm. to the walk. Yeah. Where that will tell us even more about them rather than I want to eat this pastry. That sounds really good, actually. So. <laughs> I would say just to come along the same thread it's just in general the submission spent a lot of time in the past mm-hmm. which is i think it's it's a risky move to do at the beginning of the book almost to the point where i wondered if there's this much in the past that's this important to what's going on right now why not just just start, start just past. start in the past mm-hmm. i mean you imagine that moment though where my mother is is dead we're leaving the city and the guy i have a crush on that i'm supposed to meet i, I might miss him he's waiting like, for me that's a tense scene Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying, because I'm not, I'm not allowed to be prescriptive, I'm not saying you should start there. But it, it was, could start there. But it could start there. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so this, is a, this is a possibility. Basically what we were talking about during the first part of the podcast is trying to figure out how to dispense those details. And I feel like you could start here and that would be fine. Mm-hmm. But you just need to figure out how to dispense those details in a way that works de- a little bit more. You need to make the details immediately present. Yeah, because a lot of the backstory is so interesting. Is. And I like love the way it's given and like the atmospheric detail that goes along with it. And it's an emotional backstory. And I feel like... I would be willing to wait for some of it. Yeah. So maybe like a specific example, but like rather than taking a couple paragraphs to tell about how their first meeting ended and them throwing mud at each other, at least we hope it was mud, <laughs> which was which was great, by the way. It was. Rather than doing that, if you can work that into a single throwaway dialogue line that alludes to that's how they met the first time, then you can kind of get the same information across, but keep the pacing much quicker, mm-hmm. tighter. Yeah, Another quick note on that particular scene with the mud flicking. Um, turns out they're flicking mud at each other to be funny, but the first time Will flicks mud at her, I thought he was angry at her, and so I got 
the wrong feel for that scene until later. Um, another thing to watch out for is filter words. That's super picky line level stuff. But if you go through a, your chapter and find things like I can see or I feel, they put distance between the reader and the point of view when you could just tell us what they like. Instead of saying, I can feel my arm stinging, you could say my arm stings. Mm-hmm. This might just be a problem that I had, but I felt like the last few paragraphs where Olivia finally sees her mom, I felt like Olivia was purposefully withholding the fact that it was her mother from us, and I I wasn't sure why. From like a meta standpoint, it's a much better bangy end to a chapter to be like, it's my mom, but when Olivia first sees her mom, she should recognize that it's her mom. And so I was wondering why we didn't get that earlier or in a different order. And kind of like without more justifying details, which there could be plenty but without them i was wondering like this is this is an extreme reaction i'm not saying you wouldn't be a little freaked that i thought you were dead but the fact that like she you know does the i'm having a moment with this guy oh and then she like runs away whatever she saw freaked her out so badly that she's just going to sprint away and not even tell the guy she's with that hey do you see me? is that my does, do you, does that look like my mom over there i mean so it could be that she's like a floating corpse with a head listing with maggots boiling out of her eyes, and that's why we're running away. I did not, I did not but, get that. But, I, I, that's what I was doing either. <laughs> but my point being, though, is that we, we don't know. Mm-hmm. So. Well, we are about out of time for this podcast. Anyone have final notes? I think we're good. Okay, then. Thank you so much for submitting. We enjoyed reading this. Our next episode is going to be live at Fan X Salt Lake and Charlie Holmberg author of the Paper Magician series and many other books will be appearing with us. If you'd like a first chapter critique from her, give us your first chapter by April 12th. If you weren't chosen this week, feel free to submit again for future episodes. Remember, you can watch the video feed of this recording on YouTube, or you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us ratings, reviews, and comments. It helps others to find the show. If you like us, please share the show with your friends. If you want to ask us questions or tell us we're awesome, you can find us on Twitter at LitService or on Facebook and Instagram at LitServicePodcast. Or you can email us at LitServicePodcast at gmail.com. You can also come heckle us in person at FanX <laughs> or ask us questions during the Q&A at the end, should you so desire. Special thanks this episode to our intern, Chelsea Mortensen, and our sound designer and generally better at electronics than the rest of us person, Jason Akinaka. <laughs> <laughs> Lit Service is brought to you by Writer's Clearinghouse. Writer's Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off on evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we'll see you at FanX.